All right, I'm so excited uh, for this new series. We're beginning a new series today on Nehemiah. Uh, it's a guy in the Old Testament. And let me just, listen, I love history. I'm going to try, if I start going way too long, somebody just start waving at me. Uh, I will try to contain the history for you. But I do want to kind of paint the broad strokes of where we are in the Old Testament. Um, does everybody know who David is? Can we start there? Okay, great. So David is a king, right? He's like... I, he's not hes not the first king, but we, I kind of ignore Saul because he kind of messed up. So da- David is the king, right? And after David comes Solomon, and Solomon is that guy who's super wise. Read Proverbs. Oh my gosh, read Proverbs. It's amazing. And then after Solomon, uh, things kind of start to go a little wonky. And, and the, they divide, <laughs> much as many cultures do, into the north and to the south. And as always, the south is better than the north, right? Uh, <laughs> That's for my southerners. I make fun of them a lot. Um, so the, the northern tribes fall first. They get conquered by this group of people. You know, really important. They, they get conquered later too. Assyrians, they conquer them. Then the Judah, the southern tribes are super faithful, kind of, but they eventually are not faithful too, right? Because we're people and we're humans. And so the Babylonians are the next world empire and they conquer Judah. Uh, after the Babylonians... Um, real, real quick, what these countries are doing when they conquer Israel and Judah is that they are devastating the land, right? So this was kind of the ancient approach to how you conquered peoples, is that you would go in, you would raise the place down to the ground, you would try to break up the person or the people's identity. And primarily the three things that people had as identity were their land, was their religion, and was their leadership. And so the way in which they destroyed these things was, one, they burned any religious things down to the ground so that there was nothing left. After that, they would take all the leaders, anyone who shows any sort of promise of leadership, um, they would be taken away and put into exile and relocated somewhere else throughout the empire so that all that would be left would be the people that were afraid would be people that were not educated, people that were the peasants of the land so that they would not foment rebellion. Well, this policy changes when the Persian government comes into power. They conquer the Babylonians, and this guy named Cyrus, who he's talked about in the Bible, does a really great thing for the people of God, is he says, listen, all that stuff before, I'm going to look like a nice guy because you're basically already destroyed. You can go back to your home if you like. And so there are three waves of returns back to Jerusalem. And both of the, all these waves of return are actually described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were considered at the time of Jesus uh, one book. They were examined as one book together in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation, and also in the Talmud. So usually when people approach this, they approach it as one book. We today kind of separate it out. But those two books describe the return back to Jerusalem. The first wave is read by a, led by a guy named Zerubbabel, I think is how you say it. And then about 70 years later comes a guy with a great name. His name is Ezra. Uh, which is also my son's name. And so they come back and they rebuild the temple. And then a little bit later, the final wave of people returning is this guy, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a gifted administrator who takes the people of God back and rebuilds the wall. But this story is more than about rebuilding a wall. It is really about rebuilding hope of the covenant community there in Israel. 
about rebuilding the society based on God's word and on his covenant promises. Promises that began at the very beginning of the Bible to Abraham and that extend all the way to today the promises for you and I as the people of God. So that's kind of your summary for the book of Nehemiah, and that's what we're going to look at today. I encourage you, open your Bibles. This is God's Word. Uh, it is a gift. One of the huge themes we're going to see over and over in the book of Nehemiah is how God's people are called to treasure His Word and how His Word has effect in our lives and in our communities as well. So again, open your Bibles up to Nehemiah chapter 1. It's a little confusing because it's one of the, it is the last narrative in the Bible before or the Jesus narrative. Um, when Ezra was written, that's the last prophets, like uh, uh, um, Malachi. So those last prophets in the end of the Bible, that's written during the time of Ezra. And then Nehemiah is the last narrative before, 400 years later, before Jesus is born. And so this is really setting the stage for our redemptive history. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. It's, it's a little long, but friends, it's worth it. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O God, Lord, o Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow. So... Um, what is the situation? Oh, I don't have slides for you. I think you can follow today. There's only really two points, okay? Um, first of all, what is the situation that's going on? The situation is very, very bad. Verse 3 says, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile. In other words, the folks that were still there and the folks that had returned back down there with Zerubbabel and uh, with Ezra, 
those folks, things are not going well at all. It says that the walls of Jerusalem are broken and its gates are destroyed by fire. Sometime between the time of Ezra, when Ezra went down there, they rebuilt the temple and they started to rebuild the walls as well. But we don't know, it doesn't say, but something happened in between the time of Ezra and this news that reaches Nehemiah that the construction of the walls and the gates had ceased. Likely what had happened is that while the Persians were okay with them rebuilding the temple, building defensive structures were maybe a question mark in their head, right? Uh, Because why do you build walls? To protect yourself, right? The gates are the entrances in and out of the holy city. So the only reason you would need to build a wall around the city would be for defensive capabilities. And if you are under the occupation of a foreign government, do you think that government is like super excited about you building up defensive fortification? Probably not, right? And so something along the lines of that probably happened in between the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the state of the kingdom of God is disastrous. Jerusalem is a poor shell of what it used to be. Even though the temple is rebuilt, it's nothing like what it used to be. In fact, if you read the book of Ezra, when the uh, people return and they are worshiping, all the young people, because they're foolish and young, all the young people are... um, Like, yay, look at this amazing temple that we have. And all the old people are crying and weeping because they know what the original Solomon's temple looked like. And they say, this is not it, friends. And the same thing, now the walls have been broken down. They have burned. Um, Recently, recently, I go on a walk all the time (laughs) just to get away from my family out in the woods. And uh, I'm just kidding. It's so I can be with God and you. Uh, So I was out in the woods. And guess what? Half of the forest burned down. I don't even know what happened. I, I, like No one told me. They didn't, they didn't give me a notification. Uh, but I was walking through there. A big chunk of the forest had burned down. And every day that I walked there for the whole week, the, the ground was hot. And you could smell the smoke. And, the, and it's like a week later from this huge fire in this forest. And there's still smoke rising from the ground. Complete and total devastation. This is the imagery of Jerusalem. This is the imagery of the home of their God, Yahweh. This is the imagery of their community, of their city, of their land, of their people. Things are not going well. Psalm 137 kind of gives us the heart of how the people felt. It's, here's what it says. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. <laughs> Remembering back to when God was present in the temple, when David and the kingdom was spread and it was united. On the willows there we hung up our lies. Our captors, our tormentors, required songs of us saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. So the, the state of Jerusalem is terrible. What about us? This is going to be the hard part for us to hear today. Is what is the state of the kingdom of God today in the United States? Friends, I have to tell you, it is very similar to the situation in Nehemiah. Where our walls have been burned down, our gates are destroyed, and we are in utter decline here in the United States. I looked up some numbers, but you don't need to hear the numbers to know the reality, right? I'll tell them to you anyway, because I like them. About 
Um, I think it was like 1940s that we really started keeping track of uh, uh, church attendance and things like that. And um, back then, uh, all the way up until around 2000, 70% of the population said that they were members of a church. Just members, right? We, we know that membership doesn't mean like you're committed. Right? No offense to the members that are here. This is your one Sunday of the year. No offense to you guys. But just members. All you have to do is say, I want to be a member of a church, right? The, the, the bar is pretty low as far as being able to be a member of the church. So 70%. The last 20 years, that's dropped down down to 47%. They're just members. It's even worse if you ask Christians, how many of you guys are actually practicing Christians? And again, the bar's pretty low. The, uh, this is from Barna, by the way. They said, if, if, you, if your faith is important in your life, then you are a practicing Christian. And what's amazing to me is that people say they're Christians, but that faith is not important in their life. That's a whole other story, right? But only, if you ask that question, of our population, only 25% say that faith is important in their life today. The agnostic, atheist, and really the nun segment, like on these surveys, if you check, I don't know, I'm none of these things. That has jumped from 11 to 21% in the last 15 years. About 60% of our churches have plateaued or in decline right now. Most, this is, this is, it's hard to hear, most have fewer than 100 people attending services each Sunday. 21% average less than 50. Only about 10% average 250 folks or more. Only 10% of the churches in the United States have more than 250 people. We used to be one of those churches. Two years ago, if I looked out into this crowd, we would have at least 250 folks. We were averaging that that amount. Last Sunday was a big Sunday for us. We celebrated Debbie Green. Pastor Tommy's last Sunday, we had 146 people here. There are some people online. The pandemic has hurt us in some ways. But really, most of all, what the pandemic has done is accelerated the trends that we are already seeing. And that after this is over, friends, many people are not going to return to churches. They're just not going to. And here's the worst part, at least for me. More than half of the churches in the United States, think about this, of all the churches in the United States, 50% of them, more than half of them, only saw 10 people come to Christ. Conversions. And what we realize when you dig deep is that the churches that are growing are just growing from transfer growth. And what I mean is that you have all these little churches. Again, remember, most churches are 100 or less. That's not a lot of resources to provide for staff and things like that. Um, when those churches shut down, those people go to another church. And we tend to start congregating in places where, it, friends, if we can just survive, we'll grow. But is that the growth that we're looking for? Is it just survival? Um, this is one of the reasons I love the EPC. I've been in three different Presbyterian denominations. There's 27 of them, so I have a long ways to go. But one of the, my favorite things about the EPC is in the Book of Order, they say this is the primary mission of us. This is why we exist as a local church. Let me read it to you. I've read it to you before, but let me read it to you. It is the primary mission of the local church to evangelize. To make disciples by extending the gospel home and abroad, leading others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, providing for the nurture of that faith that all might worship the true God and grow in grace and sanctification. 
It's to be remembered that good deeds and ministry and service to others, offering relief, is the fruit of the gospel. In other words, what most churches focus on, good deeds, ministry, service, that stuff is good. However, the church must never confuse its primary mission of evangelism, the gospel, with the fruit of faith, good works. In other words, it is the stated mission of the EPC that we are going to reach new believers for Christ. That they will be converted. And yet the EPC has been in decline in membership since 2016. That's our stated purpose. Most churches, when we get a new member, it is someone who is already a Christian. When you came here, were you already a Christian or did you become converted? Is that how you came here? Raise your hand if when you came to this church you were already a Christian. Most all of us, right? I won't, because there's only maybe like one, I won't ask you if you were converted. I had this image as I was walking in, uh, in the burned woods. <laughs> and I was thinking, how many generations of Weems Christians have there been that somewhere way back in my history, probably in Scotland, because that's the best place, uh, Somebody walked up to some weems living in a cave, because that's what weems means, by the way. It's like, we're the people of the cave. I like it. <laughs> Someone came up to great-great-great-great-grandpa weems, introduced him to Christ, and that there have been generations of weems covenant faithfulness in the family, and then we came over to the United States, and there have been generations after generations after generations of weems. And a lot of them are bad because they're Methodist, but we forgive that, right? But there have been generations, and I ask myself, is this the last generation of Weems Christians? You see this great, huge family tree of believers, and you can probably look back to your own families and see the same thing, of God's covenant faithfulness to you and your family and your extended family over generation after generation after generation. Is this the generation that it's done? Is this the generation that the, the last Weems will proclaim the gospel? will believe in Jesus Christ. I hope not. I pray not. I can't imagine that that would be so. And yet what we see is that is what's happening to countless family names across the United States. Generations of covenant families will end here today. Hopefully, that's enough of the bad news. Hopefully that, that stirs up something inside of you. When Nehemiah looked at the walls, he was not content with that. And I hope as we hear this news or as we watch the way in which our culture and our society goes, we understand that this is, one, not the way that it's supposed to be. And that, two, it stirs within us discontent. And that's the name of this sermon, holy discontent. Because what Nehemiah has is what's called a holy discontent. Not a discontent like, hey, um, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the traffic is too bad out there, right? Or, I, you don't clean up the dishes enough. I'm channeling my inner wife. Or, whatever it may be. A holy discontent is a discontent that is righteous. That is, says, this is not the way the kingdom of God is supposed to be. And something is wrong with the current situation. And we are stirred up inside of us. Ask yourself, what is it that makes you sad? What is it that makes you angry? What is it that you just can't stand? 
For Nehemiah, it was Jerusalem and the covenant community. Jerusalem was sacred to him and his people, even though he had never been there. He was raised in Babylon, and yet he has the heart of the psalmist when he says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. For you, it might be the state of your family. It might be the state of the surrounding community. It might be the state of our nation. It might be the state of this church. Whatever it is, we have to respond, right? Because that kind of discontent builds energy. When you are truly upset about something, that creates some sort of spiritual, emotional energy, physical energy within you. Next time you get angry, see if you feel any energy. You do. And so what do we do in response to that? Do we throw ourselves into politics and try to win the day that way? Do we increase our social media posting about how bad things are? Is that what's going to do it? Do we talk about it every night at the dinner table? Do we move away to where some things maybe seem better? Because I can tell you, up here in the Pacific Northwest, things are going faster than they are down in the South in more ways than one. What do you I make fun of them? What does Nehemiah do? He immediately and persistently goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 4, As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Listen, Nehemiah is an incredibly gifted man. You don't rise, I'll talk more about him next, next week, but you don't rise to the level of, of cupbearer in the greatest kingdom of the world at that time, Persia, without having gifts and talents. And as we'll see throughout this book, he almost single-handedly, in some ways, leads the rebuilding effort of God's community, setting the stage for Jesus' birth later. And yet, the only thing that he can do is pray. For us, that is often the last resort that we have, is prayer. When we're run out of options. But for Nehemiah, it is not his last resort. It is his first resort. It is the first thing that he does when he is confronted with his holy discontent. He did not give up. His heart was engaged, and he prayed persistently. If you look in there, it names these months Chislev, and there's another one in there as well. Basically, he prayed for three to five months before he did anything. He hears this news, and then he persistently prays for three to five months, maybe as many as 150 times this prayer that we're about to see or a version of it with no answer whatsoever from God. Months of prayer. What we're called to do is to channel our holy discontent. So one, decide that you are going to turn your frustration into fuel to take positive action. In other words, the energy that is built and that you typically want to express as anger, you have to convert that through the grace of God into positive action. That energy that it builds because this is not the way things are supposed to be must be converted into positive action or nothing will ever happen. So make the decision today that whatever your holy discontent is, that you will do something. (laughs) Number two, don't do anything. Wait. Pray. Pray and pray. 
and pray. Be persistent and don't give up. I use a lot of your time, but I do want to look at a couple elements of this prayer. This prayer is a lot like the Lord's Prayer. It is probably the culmination of Nehemiah praying for these months over and over and over again. And you get this final version. Uh, he was praying something along these lines. But overall, it's not a prayer that you have to memorize like the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer that guides us. A prayer that shows, hey, these are kind of the elements of prayer. And so what we see first is, the, is that adoration, that, that every prayer that we have ends and begins with God. Because t- frankly, friends, we're fallen, broken people, and what do we tend to focus on is ourself. And so if we begin our prayers recognizing God and His kingdom and His greatness, and we end with that, it kind of helps keep us centered on what the purpose of prayer is. It is for us to be interacting with God and for God to interact with us. It's one of those mysterious places, by the way, where God's sovereignty interacts with human responsibility. We know that everything is in God's hand, and yet God calls us to pray. He calls us to it. The second aspect there is confession. Verse 7 says, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you have commanded Moses. Two things. One, Nehemiah, though he is not in Jerusalem, allies himself with the people of Israel. He confesses sin corporately. And I'm just going to hit this very briefly because it's, it's a big thing that's hard for us in our Western minds to get. At least it is for me. Western thinking typically tends to be individualistic. And so we tend to, in the Western Hemisphere, focus on how we maybe individually did something. So we don't have to say, for example, uh, <laughs> the New Hope attendance is down. But that's not on me. I'm an individual. I, d- I said hello to people. I did what I was supposed to do. In Eastern thought, there tends to be more of a corporate mentality. That we are a body. Read scripture, friends. It's an Eastern mindset. That we are one people. That we are one family. That what one part of the body does affects the other. And so Nehemiah, when he confesses his sin, he does it corporately. He confesses the sin of his father and his father's fathers before his God. The other thing is, and this is crucial, the one sin that is singled out. The one, and this is a theme that runs throughout Nehemiah. Is that God's people, their primary issue is not that Assyria had better government and better armies, or that Babylon um, was, was, was a better country. Their, their chief issue is their personal sin of having God's word and ignoring it. When we read scripture, and, and I know I'm going long, but friends, all the time I read, <laughs> read scientific journals because I'm weird, and um, there's studies that come out and they're like, this just in, if you sit down and are quiet, you'll have a better life. And you're like, what? If I have a quiet time and, and, and meditate and think about life, I'll be better? It's like, yeah, big surprise, right? There are things like that all the time throughout Scripture, wisdom that is given to us. But more importantly, it is the story of God revealing himself to his people, saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what we see that Israel's chief sin is that they have neglected the word of God, that it has no longer been important in their lives. The chief problem is sin. I know you've probably heard this quote before, but uh, when the Times of London, they invited authors, 
hey, write in and, and explain what is the problem with the world. And famous author, author G.K. Chesterton wrote in, they're expecting these big essays, right? What's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton writes in and says, dear sirs or madams, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton, right? The big problem is sin. It starts, it starts within here. You can't overflow into your community. You can't overflow into your family. You can't overflow into your neighborhoods if you have not addressed the sin that is in your own heart. And the remedy is, is told to us right here in Scripture as it is told over and over again. If you return to me, the remedy is turning back. That whatever your path is, if it's going this way, if it's towards wealth, if it's towards fame, if it's towards uh, being really successful in life, if it's towards comfortability, he says, stop and turn. That's all that repentance means is turn away from the focus on the things of the world and focus instead on the things of God and the kingdom of God and on Him. Turn back. In fact, that's the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The other thing is promises. Nehemiah reminds the Lord that the people of Israel are his people. He reminds them of of his covenant that he has made through Abraham, that he is not going to let his people fail. And the covenant is not uh, stipulated based on their response. In other words, God will be faithful no matter how unfaithful they are. And these are the same promises that Jesus makes to us today. In fact, the word there that Nehemiah uses when he uses the word redeemed in verse 10, that verb in the Hebrew is the strongest possible affirmation that a ransom price has been paid on their behalf. In other words, his appeal to God is based on God's character and God's promises. And he says, we are your people and you are our God because you have said so. So... Be our God. And the same is true for you and I today, even more so, right? Because we have been ransomed. We have been bought for a precious price with the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he died on that cross, he says in in the Gospels that I lay down my life for my sheep. That we have been purchased. And so our prayer is the same, which is that we are your people, God. Do not abandon us. Though we have been unfaithful, though we have not treasured your word, though we have not treasured our relationship with you, though our gates are broken and our walls are burned down, we still remain your people through the promise of Jesus Christ. Um, Hopefully on the way in you were able... Oh, I've gone so long. Hopefully on the way in you were able to get uh, one of these bookmarks. I uh, have apparently lost mine. But... Grab a bookmark if you did it. What I want to challenge you to do is to pray. Over the next 40 days as we continue this series, and 40 is a great number, it's a biblical number, I don't have time to explain it. It's the best number. Pray over the next 40 days. There's a prayer on the back that's kind of modeled after uh, Nehemiah's prayer. It's just there as a guide, but whatever it is, pray for your holy discontent. Pray for our church. Do it persistently. Come before the Lord regularly. He tells a parable about this persistent widow. God wants us to persistently come before Him. Whatever your holy discontent is, decide today that you're going to act upon it. 
Spend time in prayer, meditation, hearing and listening to God. And know that above all, because of what Jesus has done, the church will not fail. The church will prevail. The gates of Hades cannot overcome it. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we lament the state of the kingdom of God in the United States. We lament the state of the kingdom of God here in Kent, Renton, and the surrounding communities. We begin our prayer today and going forward from here asking that by the power of your spirit you would stir within us, stir within us courage and strength and power that only comes from you. We ask that you fulfill your promises in Jesus to be our God and that we would be your people. We pray these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.